0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. For her latest book, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin looks at leadership through the lives of four presidents. Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, and LBJ shared a fierce ambition and resilience that helped them overcome hardship.
1: These people went through perhaps greater harrowing experiences than we might have in our ordinary lives. But there is something I've read in the leadership literature, and it was borne out in the stories that I was able to tell, where if you do get through some difficulty and you come out the other end, there's a certain wisdom, there's a perspective, and there's probably a confidence that you've been through something really terrible.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a non-partisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. It wasn't just the adversity these presidents faced that led them to the White House. In her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, Doris Kearns Goodwin writes, a sense of moral purpose guided these men. They shared character and integrity and used their talents to enlarge the opportunities and lives of others. In this conversation with Aspen Ideas Festival director Kitty Boone, Goodwin talks about how it's fitting the book is being released now during a particularly divisive time in our country and in politics. Here's Kitty Boone. A
2: common question that I know you get all the time but I think it's important here is you started writing this book five years ago during the Obama administration and I just wanna know what having already won prizes the Pulitzer, the Lincoln Prize, et cetera, for the various books on each of these individuals, what made you go back and decide to write about their leadership style?
1: Well, the question I faced when I finished my last book on Teddy and Taft was, which new leader would I go to next? And it was always a difficult process, because each time I moved from one leader to the other, I'd have to move all my books out of the study from the guy before, and I would feel like I was leaving an old boyfriend behind and being a little traitorous to them to go from FDR to Lincoln. So I started thinking, what if instead of doing that and finding yet another person to take five or ten years with, I looked at my same guys, the one I felt closest to, Abraham Lincoln, the two Roosevelt's, and LBJ, and tried to look at them really exclusively through the lens of leadership. Obviously, it had been in there, but these other books were these sprawling biographies with families and colleagues and, and took them over the whole span of their life. And when I was in graduate school, I used to always... Not always, but we would go out drinking at night and we would nerdy kind of characters and we would talk about ambition. We would talk about Plato and Aristotle and and where does a leader come from? Is a leader born or made? Does the man make the times or the times make the man? These are the kind of things that got us all excited. And those, those have always been in my mind thinking about it. And even as I looked at the state of leadership when Obama was president, the Congress was unable for decades or more to get anything done together. So it made me feel there was something about leadership in a country that was at risk at that point. Even so, the title became "Leadership in Turbulent Times" because each of my guys ruled in turbulent times. I never realized how relevant the title would be as when it came to today.
2: So funny. So one of the things that, and we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. That's really the, the focus of this discussion today you raise a number of traits that they seem to have in common which I find fascinating. Humility, resilience, listening skills, empathy, and importantly self-control or self-governance, their ability to hold themselves back. Can you elaborate by giving some examples of those that seem to cross all of these gentlemen?
1: Well I think you know what humility means first of all is just the ability to know your own limitations, to acknowledge errors and learn from your mistakes. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, famously, when he was in the state legislature, um, he was a guy who sort of liked being in the center of attention, and he made a lot of headlines by blistering language. He would yell at his opponents, and suddenly he became the most colorful person in New York State. But he quickly learned that he couldn't get anything done. He couldn't get anybody on the other side of the aisle. So he realized that he had risen like a rocket and he was falling like a rocket. So he was able to moderate his language and to know that he wasn't all important and to reach over to the other side of the aisle. Um, Empathy, I think, the most important, probably one of the most important qualities that any leader has. I think Abraham Lincoln was born with empathy. I think you can be born or you can develop it. Um, Even as a little kid when other kids would would put hot coals on turtles to make them wriggle, um, he went to them and said, this is wrong. This is wrong to inflict pain. And there was a time when he was walking with a whole group of people and there was a person who had drunk too much, was lying in a ditch and they all walked by. He went back and carried that person to a fire. He's a young person at this point. Um, but for other people, I think empathy can be developed. Again, with, with, um, with Franklin Roosevelt, there's no question that coming through the polio as he did and learning to be with his fellow polios when he created the Warm Springs Rehabilitation Center... He allowed himself to be vulnerable, so he showed that humility. Indeed, he said, if you spent two years trying to move your big toe, you will certainly learn humility. Somehow it'll teach it to you. But by being with these other people, who he had not really had contact with, outside of his privileged status in many way, he began to see what they were feeling, and he told them how important it was to get joy in life once more. So as they're exercising in the pool at Warm Springs, they're playing water polo, they're playing tag, um, he's a spiritual director, he's the therapy guy, he's, and he then has dances in the wheelchair, they have cocktail parties at night, and they come to feel that they can have a purpose in life again. He, he connected with people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand in a deeper way than he had beforehand. So those, those two qualities, I think, are essential. And then resilience going on from, from FDR, the ability to get through loss and to come out the other end with some wisdom. I mean, that becomes a whole part of the book later on because they each go through these terrible trials, which we can talk about. Um, and then I think the self-reflection, as you said, to be able to take the time to think, um, to learn from what's happening to you, to grow in office, um, and then to be able to create a team where that team can work together and, and have lots of strong-minded people on it, and yet be able to come to some sort of purpose. All of these, there are stories to tell. So you need to tell me which ones you want me to tell stories on, because otherwise I'll be up here that's for the whole time. The
2: best part of the book is the stories. One thing that I think we all think about, everybody, it seems, in our country wants to really trust the president. Um, and I'm sort of fascinated that certainly three Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR were copious readers, copious, sort of devoured books. LBJ, a little bit different, but he devoured politics. And it made me want to ask you, sort of, about the role of native intelligence and curiosity um, and how that squares with leadership potential. I, for me personally, the notion that somebody is Curious and intelligently intellectual and really wants to understand the world around him or her is Kind of a vital ingredient for the trust that I would put in that person And I'd, I'd want to know how you thought about that relative to these four versus maybe other presidents and I'm not talking about Even the 20th century just any time.
1: Oh, I think curiosity is, is huge I mean when Abraham Lincoln was young he he only had 12 months of full schooling But he scoured the countryside for books, and it was said when he got a copy of the King James Bible or Aesop's Fables, he was so excited, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. Um, And that sense of just learning from books, but also books gave him a sense of another life beyond his life of splitting rails or shucking corn. Um, He said it gave him a vision that there was another way to be. Um, Through books, as Emily Dickinson said, books are a frigate that can take you lands away. Though he never would go to Europe, He went with Shakespeare's Kings to marry England. He went with Lord Byron's poetry to Spain and Portugal. So literature allowed him to transcend his surroundings. So they were obviously critical to Abraham Lincoln. The rhythms that he put into his great speeches came from reading poetry and drama. With Teddy Roosevelt, because he was an asthmatic child, and pretty much of an invalid when he was young, he just read books absolutely all the time, so much so that his father worried he was becoming too much of an invalid. So he told him, Teddy, you've got the mind, but not the body. You have to make your body. So this little kid starts working out, and he becomes the strenuous Teddy Roosevelt. But he never forgot reading books. He said, books are the best thing for a leader because they tell you about human nature, and there's nowhere to find about human nature better than in the great books of poetry, drama, or prose. Now, F.E.R. had a different way of dealing with books. Um, When he was young, it was a problem-solving way. He started collecting stamps. So he got fascinated with stamps. And then he'd want to read about the issuing country of the stamp. so he'd start reading about that country and its history. Then he'd see the transportation of the stamp from wherever it came. Then he'd get out his geography books. And then if he didn't understand a word, he had the dictionary there or the encyclopedia. So he created his own little world so much so that he was never a great student in college. In fact, um, the great quote that Oliver Wendell Holmes said of him was that he had a first-rate in- first-rate temperament, but a second-rate intellect. And I think that's just defining intellect in the wrong way because he had this really way of dealing with all sorts of problems and getting them all around. LBJ is is the most fascinating. When he was three or four years old, he could recite poetry. His mother so wanted him to become a little intellectual kid. She had been a teacher. She felt... In a certain sense, thwarted by her own inability to go further in school because she'd gone to college but she got married. They didn't have very much money and they're living on this farm. So he was going to become everything she wanted to become. And so he was reciting poetry. He had the alphabet when he was three. But then at a certain point, he turned against that and he just wanted to be more like his father, drinking with the cronies and understanding and caring about politics. So that from then on, the only books he wanted to read were Are They Real? Is it about something real? He only wanted to read about biographies or people so that he could learn from them. But he learned from people. I mean, he absorbed, as you're suggesting, he absorbed knowledge from people. Even when he goes to college, he decides that the best way to absorb knowledge and to get power and grow is by being with people who are the heads of things, who are in, in front of you and they know more than you. So he decides that he wants to mop outside the president of the college's office so he can get to know the president so he's mopping the floors and then the president he start talking the next thing you know he's a clerk in the president's office the next thing you know he's running errands for the president the next thing you know he's running the president's office and then that pattern of learning from other people who are older and more experienced and he continues all his life he goes to become a chief of staff to a newly elected congressman in washington he's 25 years old and he decides that I need to live in the place where all the other congressional secretaries live, and I'm going to learn from the best ones there. So to find out who the best ones were, he would go into the bathroom and brush his teeth four times every morning. He would take four showers every night so that he could see more and more people and decide these are my mentors. And then they said about him that he'd been there for six months and he knew more than people knew for 25 years who had been there. But the funny thing was, speaking of Plato and Aristotle, our old friends, Um, He finally had a heart attack when he was in his mid-50s, and they wanted to show that his life, which had been completely just powerful, driven, and he did change as a result of it. Um, He did When he came out of the depression from the heart attack, he was the most important um, majority leader in the history of the country, but without a real sense of purpose. And he said, "I, I feel now, if I were to die now, what would I be remembered for? And then he sat on a course on civil rights, even in the Senate and then in the presidency. But they decided to do an article to show how he changed. So they created this picture of him lying in his hammock, reading Plato. And Strauss music coming in, and he had become an entirely different person. It was completely fabricated, but it was a funny thought of him reading Plato and listening to Strauss in a hammock. I'm sure he never even he couldn't possibly sit still in the hammock for one second. That is really
2: that's that's an image.
1: <laughs> that's an image um, exactly. But
2: the other one that really got me was that Teddy Roosevelt could have easily been a scientist. I mean, he loved ornithology. He weirded out his roommates by having stuffed birds and frogs probably or whatever all over his room because he was so fascinated by taxonomy. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how did he how did he sway from, how did he build his curiosity
1: into where the direction that he took? Well, you know, it shows what happens depending on what the curriculum of a school is like because he went to Harvard. He really did want to become another Audubon. You know, he had collected birds from the time he was eight or nine years old and he had had made his own little Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. It's true. He carried these you know, dead lizards and snakes around in every room he went to. Nobody wanted to be his roommate. He finally had to get his own room. <laughs> um, but then when he went to study, what he was hoping would be ornithology or 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 nature, the love of nature, it was much more of a scientific stuff where you're just in the lab, you're not outside. And it wasn't what he wanted. He was too full of energy to just sit there cutting up frogs. So he decided that that wasn't going to be for him. And so he comes out of Harvard. Then he starts law school but he doesn't really like law school either it's too passive for him he's just got so much energy and so at the age of 23 he decides that he's going to run for the state legislature and um, it was an unusual thing because people of his privileged class didn't usually run for local and there were a lot of irish who were running in, the, in politics at that time and he's of that other robin protestant class but he starts going to the Republican headquarters in his silk stocking district. And he ends up loving talking to these people and learning from them. And he can actually fit in despite looking like a dude and wearing his fob and you know, having these tight pants. And so he begins to think that this is an interesting thing. He went into it thinking, I'm not changing people's lives. This is just an adventure. But then this is where politics can expand you. So at 23 years old, he begins to go into these tenements where cigars are being manufactured. He goes into, he eventually becomes a police commissioner and he's walking the streets at night, seeing the slums and how terrible the buildings are, the health conditions. Then he eventually becomes a soldier and he's sharing food and tent with soldiers. So he develops, finally he says, it wasn't in him at the start. He develops an empathy and a fellow feeling, he calls it, for the lives of other people. And then he decides, there is a purpose to my ambition. I'd like to be able to make these lives better. So at a certain point, I think for all my guys, They start out with ambition for the self, except for Abraham Lincoln. it's Right away, it starts for everything, because he's always the outlier. I mean, when he first runs, when he's 23 years old, he gives this remarkable statement. He says, every man has his peculiar ambition. He's running for the state legislature in a town, New Salem, where he's only been for six months. And they hardly know him, but you have to put out a handbill. So he said, every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man, by making myself worthy of their esteem. Here he is at 23, saying this. He said, "No, I know that I may not win this election. Um, I don't know a lot of you. I have no popular relations to recommend me. But if, I, if you don't vote me in, I've been so um, familiar with disappointment, I won't be too chagrined. But then he says, but I'll tell you, if I don't win, I'm going to try again. In fact, I think I'll try five or six times until it's too, too humiliating and I'll feel too dejected. And then I promise you I'll never try again, which is amazing, right then, that perseverance at that age. And he doesn't win the election the first time. But then by the second time, he's gone around the, the county of Sangamon County. More people have met him. They see his thirst for knowledge. They see his kindness, his great storytelling ability, his enormous sense of humor. And they have see a, le- a leader in the making, and then he wins, and then he's on his road. Still will have many more losses before he gets to the presidency, but he's on the road. Well, that
2: sort of got into the sense of ambition because I wanted to ask you about what ambition means for people who ascend to the presidency. Are they always on that road or what is their innate ambition really about? Um, Lincoln said he wanted to be remembered at one point, which was kind of an interesting way to think about your life. That I want to just be here. I want to be remembered. So that might have been some part of his governing ambition. But what
1: what was the essence of of their ambition? It's, it's the most interesting question to me, even for us to even ask ourselves, because it's sort of a mystery. Where does ambition come from? In some cases, I think it can come from having a difficult life, as Lincoln did, and wanting somehow to have a different way of life and pull himself up so that he can have a broader set of experiences. Um, escaping his father, who was very difficult with him, tearing books out of his hands. Um, when I, I, was, I interviewed President Obama for an exit interview with Vanity Fair, and we were talking about Lincoln's because he he, every man has his peculiar ambition. I said, well, is that true for you too? He said, mine wasn't as highfalutin as that when I was young. Maybe it was just to, to prove myself to my absent father. Or maybe it was just to prove myself because I was of one race and the country was of another race. Um, and he said, but eventually it became something that he wanted to heal the divisions in the country between race. That didn't come till later, he said. And so I think for Teddy Roosevelt, that ambition wasn't big at the beginning. It was simply the idea that he loved being the center of attention from the time he was a little kid, and he wanted to be the center of attention again. I think that can happen. They said about him that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. He so wanted to be in the center. So I think he just thought, well, in politics, I can, I can be in the center. With, with I think, Lincoln, the, I mean, with, um, FD, with FDR, it really wasn't clear what the ambition was. In fact, he was, he was a later bloomer than the others. Um, he was not a good student, as I said, at Harvard or Columbia or, or um, at Groton, and he was not particularly interesting as a law clerk where he was working in a conservative Wall Street law firm. And then suddenly the Duchess County boss comes to him and says, would you like to run for a Democratic seat in the state legislature? And the reason was not that he had shown ambition or shown the makings of a leader, but his name was Roosevelt, and they thought some old Republicans might think it's Teddy Roosevelt, and they'll vote for him, and his mother had money to run the campaign. But the interesting thing is he said, yes, I'd love to do it. And then once he got out on that trail, he loved it. Barnstorming was so natural to him. He loved listening to people, talking to them. He wasn't a great speaker at first. Eleanor, who was there at the time, said that he would pause so long between his sentences that she was afraid he would never go on. But then by the end of the campaign, they had to drag him off. He was up there for an hour or two. But he had found his love of politics finally at 28. And he said that it was almost like, as William James, the philosopher, said, you find that voice within that says, this is the real me. So I think, that, I think sometimes it's the ambition gets connected to something. You know it's what you want to do, but then it may take a while before it becomes ambition for something larger that's, than yourself. That's and what that's, that's what when asking. you become a much more interesting leader.
2: And, and it takes what kinds of experiences to make that? transfer from being an ambitious person. I want to do well. I want to be more. I'm capable. I know I'm capable. I can take on this responsibility to saying, as you mentioned about Obama, it wasn't until X that I realized that I wanted to unite the country. I mean, certainly FDR walked into one of the most difficult situations any president could ever imagine, and he did it. Right. But that was, how, how much prior to that opportunity did he know that that was his
1: goal in life. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you just reminded me of, though, I think at each stage as they move um, from one position in politics to another, that willingness to accept more and more responsibility becomes really an important trait. But forgetting the ambition for a moment, I mean, they said about Roosevelt, things were so bad in February before he was inaugurated that why would anybody want to take on that situation? The banks are collapsing, um, people are without jobs, there's rioting in the streets. He himself said he wasn't sure that the House of Cards might collapse before he even took the inaugural oath. And yet somebody said of him at the time, but he can't wait to have that responsibility. I think that's something for a leader because some people may not want to take responsibility, and they do. But then sometimes the circumstances, especially a circumstance of a crisis like that, allows you, I think, to make that ambition larger than it would otherwise have been. But sometimes, as I said, it just comes through It comes through um, your own I think that's what politics used to be great at. I'm not sure it does it the same way now. If it gives you a large set of broadening experiences, like Teddy was not only the um, state legislator, but he was a cowboy in the ranch after his wife and his mother died on the same day in the same house. He was so depressed. She died in childbirth. His mother had come to take care of his wife, and she was only 49 and got typhoid fever. So the double deaths of those, he sent him into a depression so deep that he went to the badlands to to recover, he was there for two years, and he becomes a cowboy. So suddenly, he's not this Eastern effete guy. He's a cowboy. And he begins to love nature again even more. And then he begins to become a conservationist. And then he comes back to the East Coast with a, a more mature ambition than he'd had when he was blustering around in the first part. So it could be some loss in your life. It could be some crisis that you're put into, and you see that you got through it, and you feel that sense of fulfillment. I mean, with LBJ, I think it was when he first got that civil rights bill through the Congress. He thought, my God, this is incredible. I've done something that will change the entire South. And then he wants to keep going. I want voting rights. I want Medicare. I want aid to education. I want immigration reform. With each success, he wanted the fulfillment of doing something even greater.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. The world watched last week as a record number of women were sworn into Congress. Ann Mosley, who runs the Aspen Institute's Ascend program, says it's an exciting time. They're women from very different backgrounds, and they're bringing passions and stories and new perspectives that are much more relevant to the future of communities and countries. In our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, Mosley sits down with Peggy Clark. Clark is executive director of the Aspen Global Innovators Group, They discuss what this women's wave means for national policy. Find the episode by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. Here's the rest of today's show. Kitty Boone.
2: You mentioned with um, Teddy, and I thought this was really, really a stunning revelation for me in this book, in thinking about these four people, is that they all actually suffered from depression and had to deal with that. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, not that every leader needs to go through a phase <laughs> of depression, I hope not, but, um, but it actually built their character. And I wonder if you could reflect on that, if you found that a fascinating point of commonality between all of them.
1: I think it's really important to realize that you know, that these, these people went through perhaps greater harrowing experiences than we might have in our ordinary lives. But there is something I, I've read in the lead, leadership literature, and it was borne out in the stories that I was able to tell, where if you do get through some difficulty and you come out the other end, there's a certain wisdom, there's a perspective, and there's probably a confidence that you've been through something really terrible. I mean, with Abraham Lincoln, I mean his depression was the, was the deepest um, when he was in his early 30s and still in the state legislature. He began to feel that these desires for this large impact on life and where he was at the time were just too big to bridge. And he fell into a depression so deep that his friends took all knives and razors and scissors from his room. And his great friend came in his room for a week. He wouldn't come out. And they said he didn't even look like himself anymore. And they came to him and said, Lincoln, you must rally or you will die. And he said, I know that. But, and I just as soon die now, but I've not yet accomplished anything to make any human being remember that I have lived. That same desire, to somehow do something. I think it may have come from the fact that his mother died when he was nine years old. His only sister, Sarah, died um, a few years later. His first love, Ann Rutledge, died at 22. And he began to question, is there another life? Is there a hereafter? And if there's not, and he's not sure about that, then you have to make your life here something that people will tell your story afterwards. And then you live on in the memory of others. That was very much instituted in him when he was young. But having gone through that depression and having a melancholy temperament that stayed with him the rest of his life he was able to to deal with it and know that he could get through those bad times because he had done it before i think that's key and um as i said with with, with teddy roosevelt it was the losing of his wife and mother on the same day that sent him in because he had been a very cocky very sure his life was just going on an upward path and he saw that fate could intervene at any moment so instead of trying to get one job after another, he originally thought, I'll be in the state legislature, then I'll be a congressman, then I'll be a senator, then I'll be a governor, and then I'll be a vice president, and then I'll be a president. And, and then he just saw, I better just take whatever job seems to me really interesting right now and not be sure whether it's going to lead me somewhere upward, but it's what I want to do. Maybe it'll be the last job I ever have. So when he becomes civil service commissioner, his friend said, this is too low for you. Why are you doing it? He said, I want to do it. I believe in the merit system. Police commissioner, why in the world would you want to be that? I want to clean up the police department. And he had this great system when he was a police commissioner. He would go out in disguise from midnight until 5 AM with a big hat and a big coat just to see if the policemen were on the beat doing their duty. And they wouldn't recognize him at first. And there was a time when he saw a policeman lolling around with a girl and and he said can i see your badge and he said what's it to you the guy said and then somebody said to him that's the police commissioner and then they saw his glasses and his big teeth and that guy shrinks away and then there were cartoons all over the place of policemen terrified by glasses and big teeth but he saw what was happening there again And that job it was an extraordinary job and then as i say he has all these other jobs and eventually the winding path ends up in the youngest presidency but he's had a set of experiences as a result of that curiosity of just wanting to do what you can, almost a fatalism, because maybe it'll be the last job you ever have. One thing that
2: also these gentlemen seem to have is a sense of humor. And I I would love you to sort of explore that
1: a little bit because they were funny. So missing in our current political world is that not only the sense of humor, but that self-deprecating sense of humor. I mean, Abraham Lincoln said that humor was for him a way of whistling off sadness that a good story was better for him than a drop of whiskey so that when he was on the circuit in illinois the lawyers and the judges used to travel for six weeks every spring and every fall trying cases together and they'd then stay at the taverns at night and when anybody Lou lincoln was in town people would come after a while from miles around to listen to him tell funny stories he could stand with his back against the fire for hours and tell one winding tale after another sometimes they were like aesop's fables they had a moral Um, and he would talk about that, but sometimes they were just simply hilarious. I was so glad that I was able to persuade um, Steven Spielberg and Daniel Day-Lewis to tell my favorite Lincoln story, and Daniel told it greatly. Um, It had to do, as Lincoln told the story, with the Revolutionary War hero Ethan Allen, and as Mr. Allen um, was, was, when the revolution was over, he was going to England to a dinner party, so they decided to irritate him by putting a huge picture of General George Washington in the only outhouse where he'd have to encounter it sooner or later. And they figured he'd be very indignant at the idea of George Washington in an outhouse. But he came out of the outhouse not upset at all. They said, well, did you see George Washington there? He said, oh, yes. I think it was the perfectly appropriate place for him. What do you mean, they said? Well, he said, there's nothing to make an Englishman shit faster than the sight of General George Washington. <laughs> and he had Hundreds, he had hundreds of these stories. So you can imagine if you're in the middle of a tough cabinet meeting and one of these stories comes up, you will be able to relax. There's another moment when he's in a debate with Stephen Douglas and somebody yells at him, those debates were met. Instead of us here now, there'd be like thousands of people here listening to them debate for six hours. And the audience would be part of the debates, like a football game. Hit him again, hit him again, harder, harder. And at one point, somebody yelled at Lincoln, you're two-faced. And he turned to the person and he said, if, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face? <laughs> I mean, I've told Stephen Colbert and John Stewart, if Lincoln were alive today, he could absolutely match them one on one. But humor was his way of falling asleep at night when he couldn't sleep with the anxieties of the war. He would take one of Shakespeare's comedies and go to his two young secretaries who were living in the White House and read it aloud to him so he could go to bed remembering the funny story rather than the war that was raging. And Teddy also had that self-deprecating sense of humor. A a journalist wrote him a review of his memoir of the Spanish-American War. And he said that Teddy had placed himself in every action of every battle of every war. He should have called the book Alone in Cuba. And so what does he do? He writes the journalist. He said, I regret to tell you that my wife and my intimate friends are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me something. I've long wanted to meet you. That's the way to suffuse that kind of, instead of just taking the criticism personally, the one thing that FDR did, which was fabulous, at a certain point when he, in 1944, he was on a long trip to Asia, and he brought his dog Fallow with him, and um, and then he came back. And then the Republicans made up that he had left Fallow by mistake over there, and the government had to pay millions of dollars to get fallow back on a special destroyer. And Fallow was a Scottish ter- terrier, and I guess the Scots are, are pretty concerned about spending too much money. So he gives this whole talk in which he says, You know, I I can take attacks on myself. I'm used to that. My wife is used to attacks. My children are used to attacks. But my little foul dog, he's not used to attacks. And being called as if he had wasted the government's money, he's never been the same dog since. It was just great. And the people are laughing. And it completely scotched the Republicans' attacks on him. But but that takes an ability to look at yourself from the outside in and laugh. But The other thing that, that FDR did to
2: sort of alleviate the pressure of the times, sort of maybe like Lincoln
1: reading comedies, is that he had cocktail parties every right, night of right. World War II, right? Yeah, this, this, he, it was amazing. These people knew how, and this is an important unheralded trait, I think, in leadership, especially in our 24-7 word, world. They knew how to find time to think, to relax and replenish their energies. Lincoln went to the theater a hundred times during the Civil War. He said when the lights went down and, a, and a, a Shakespeare play would come on, he could imagine himself back at the War of the Roses and forget the Civil War that was raging. So in a similar fashion, FDR had a cocktail party every night during World War II, and the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about books you'd read, movies, gossip about people, as long as the war didn't get mentioned. So for a few precious hours, he could forget the war that was raging. And after a while, this cocktail hour was so important to him that he wanted his friends and associates to be living on the second floor of the White House ready for the cocktail hour. So then the White House became the most exclusive residential hotel. His foreign policy advisor, Harry Hopkins, came for dinner one night, slept over, never left until the war came to an end. Princess from Norway in exile in America during the war lived with the family on the weekend. Eleanor's friend, Lorena Hickok, lived in a bedroom next to hers. And, um, and Winston Churchill, the great Winston Churchill, came and spent weeks at a time in a bedroom diagonally across from Roosevelt's So when I was writing the book, I became obsessed with the thought of all these people in their bathrobes at night in the corridor that surrounds the bedroom suites up there on the second floor and wishing when I'd been up there with LBJ when I was 24 years old, when I was working for him as a White House fellow, I'd seen those rooms, but I never thought of asking, where was Churchill? Where was Roosevelt? Where was Eleanor? So I mentioned this on a radio program in Washington, the Diane Rehm show here, and it happened that Hillary Clinton was listening. So she called me up at the radio station, invited me to sleep overnight in the White House. She said we could have a sleepover together and figure out where everyone had slept. So a couple weeks later, she invited my husband and me to a state dinner, after which between midnight and 2 AM, the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband and I, my map in hand, we went through every room up there and figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was. The Clintons are sleeping where FDR was, and they gave us that night Winston Churchill's bedroom, which meant I was sleeping where Winston Churchill slept. No way could I sleep. In fact, that's my favorite story in World War II. When Churchill came there right after Pearl Harbor, he and Roosevelt were set to sign a document that put the associated nations against the Axis powers, but no one really liked the word associated nations. So Roosevelt awakens that morning with the whole new idea of calling them United Nations against the Axis powers. He was so excited. He had himself wheeled into Churchill's bedroom to tell him the news, but it so happened Churchill was just coming out of the bathtub, had nothing on. So Roosevelt said, I'm so sorry. I'll come back in a few moments. Churchill, ever able to speak in a very formal voice, standing there with nothing on, said, oh, no, please stay. The prime minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the president of the United (laughs) (laughs) States.
2: Where to, are those people today?: I, I'm trying to imagine that, that scene in the tanning, in the tanning booth. Um, um, Doris, you spent uh, a lot of time in your early scholarly pursuits, immersed in the works of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates and other philosophers. And we at the Institute admire them and speak to them and focus a lot on values and values-based. Leadership. And um, it seems that each of the presidents at their core came to their own sense of morality. And I wanted to ask you where are those sensibilities came from? And they all had some sense of moral purpose and um, ultimate reckoning. And I'm just curious um, Lincoln and FDR and, and LBJ did, did these sense of, you know, the civil rights that you mentioned, Lincoln picking up the gentleman on the side, like it was innate? But where did their
1: moral compass come from in your mind? You know, I I think what Lincoln would say is that um, it came in part from immersion in what the original ideals of the country were. There was a moment in time when he was 29 years old and the country was going through a really difficult moment. There were anti-slavery editors who were being murdered. There were lynchings in the South. He worried about mob violence taking over. He was worried about whether democracy could survive, that kind of anxiety that was developing in the land, and the rule of law was being undone. So he gave this amazing lecture where he talked about the fact that what everybody had to do was to remember the scenes of the revolution, because if we were forgetting them and they were fading, we'd forget the special country that we had, which was built not just on physical land, but on a set of ideals. And he would read, he read the Declaration of Independence, he read the Constitution, he said that people who, mothers should be reading as they read their Bible, they should be reading the scenes of the revolution to their children. So for him, I think it was a real sense of identity with what democracy meant. It was probably because he believed in his own mobility, that with hard work and discipline, he could make his way here in a way that he couldn't in another country. And he believed that ordinary people could govern themselves here in a way that they weren't in, where kings and queens and dictators were and that if you lost that sense, that was your sense of morality, of right and wrong, was connected to what we were uh, um, intending to be. And I would say with Lyndon Johnson as well that at a certain point, he just realized when you hear him talk about civil rights, that unless the civil rights struggle was put in a positive direction, and without the civil rights movement, he couldn't have done what he did, but that bill to end segregation in the South was stuck in the Senate. They had no thought that it would possibly come out. And he just talked about the fact that it had to do this. I mean, they said to him, he made it his first priority when he became president to get the civil rights bill through. And his advisor said, you can't do that. Um, It'll get stuck in the Senate. You have an election 11 years from now. They'll never break the filibuster. You only have a certain amount of coinage to expend in presidency and you can't waste it on this. And then he said, well, what the hell is the presidency for? And I think at that moment he realizes you've got power and then what are the values you're gonna use it for? So he goes and he gets somehow gets the Republicans to come with him on the, on the breaking the filibuster. If only we had that kind of bipartisan leadership today. I mean, he starts calling the congressman at six in the morning, he calls them at noon, he calls them at midnight, he calls the senator at 2 a.m. and he says, I hope I didn't wake you up. And the senator says, no, I was just looking at the ceiling hoping my president would call. <laughs> and then if the senator's not there, he'll talk to the wife. If the wife's not there, he'll talk to the kid. You get your daddy to go along with me on this bill. And then he gets to Dirksen. And it's interesting when Dirksen, the minority leader, had to bring the Republicans to help break the filibuster, and he starts bargaining with him, whatever you want, Dirksen, what do you want, an ambassadorship, you want a postmaster in Peoria, you want me to speak in Springfield, I'll do anything you want. But then he understands that Dirksen, too, could be motivated by higher motivations. And so he says to him, you know, Dirksen, if you come with me on this bill, 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. <laughs> How can Dirksen resist? But at a certain point, again, the values of the country, and then when the Civil Rights Bill gets through, he works on the Voting Rights Bill, and um, he gives one of the best speeches of the 20th century, that we shall overcome speech, which I'm proud to say my husband worked on with him at that time. And he talks about values in that speech. He talks about the fact that you know, every now and then, history and fate meet at a certain point at a certain time, So it was in Lexington and Concord. So it was at Appomattox. So it was in Selma, Alabama. And then there is no Negro problem. There is no white problem. There's no northern problem. There's no southern problem. There is only an American problem. And that American problem has to uh, deal with our ideals of what we're founded. This isn't right. What's happening? And um, and then he finally says it'll take us a long time. And then he uses the anthem of the civil rights movement. But we shall overcome. And those are the moments when I guess the, the best of these leaders come up against a challenge at the time. They go back to the values that formed our nation. They are moral values. They are ethical values that formed our nation. And then they're able to bring the country to remember those values and be mobilized by them. That's what we need. That makes this next question seem so trite. <laughs> but um, I do want to ask you about it. I mean, that's really moving,
2: actually. Let's get to the practicality. Leaders aren't leaders if they don't have followers. And one of the things that each of these gentlemen, and. It, it's still gentlemen, everybody. It's someday we might have a woman in this mix, which we'll get to. Um, each of them be- became very adept at communicating with their constituencies and um, and citizens. And Lincoln wrote very seriously on paper and then developed his oratory. And today we have a president who is using the most effective means of constant communication in the form of Twitter. And I wanted to ask you sort of, um, What's changed over this 150 years of communicating with people throughout this country and, and beyond um, about how, um, what's, what's become authentic or how, how, what is it about the communication system that's allowed these people to be so effective?
1: Yeah, I think it depends, that's the interesting thing on the technology of the time. I mean, Lincoln was fortunate to live in an age when the written word was king. So when he would write his speeches, with that gift for language. They'd be printed in full in the newspapers and then put in pamphlets and read aloud in country farms and city homes all over the country so people could uh, concentrate on the words itself. When Teddy Roosevelt comes along, the, na- the national newspapers have just come into vogue with their emphasis on catchy headlines. So he was perfect for that time because he spoke in these short, pithy statements like, speak softly and carry a big stick. You know, Don't hit until you have to and then hit harder. He even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. He would be okay in the Twitter world. I think if any of these had to come back, he could know how to speak in those punchy language. But then FDR comes along when radio has just come into being, and he had the perfect voice for radio. Not just simply the tenor of his voice, but he understood that radio was an intimate device, and you're actually speaking to individual citizens. He could imagine a shop person, a girl behind the counter, a construction worker working in the the fields, and then he was speaking to them, So that when those fireside chats were on the air, people said you could, Saul Bellow said you could walk down the street on a hot Chicago night, look at everybody looking at their radios, looking in their kitchens or their living rooms, and you could hear his voice booming out, and you could keep walking and not miss a word of what he was saying. And then there's a story of a construction worker going home, and his partner said, where are you going? He said, well, my president's coming to live with me tonight in my living room. It's only right I'd be there to greet him when he comes. Indeed, when he died, people said that people felt they had lost their friends somehow. They were hugging each other on the streets because he'd established that kind of bond through his communication. Then when you get JFK and Ronald Reagan in the age of three television networks, that's the way they can communicate and be pretty sure that the facts are the same, even if opinions might be different and people would stop and be the only thing on television. They would have to watch these speeches. Then we get to our divided world where there's the cable network, there's social media. You're watching only what you want to watch. The bully pulpit loses a lot of its power as a result of that. But during the campaign, there's no question that candidate Trump cut through all of that with his tweets that became instant news wherever they were. The difficulty, of course, is that campaigning is different from governing so that once you're governing, these kinds of instant comments become much more troubling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a sense in which Um, Lincoln understood that so well. Even when he was president and he was so good at extemporaneous debating, he never spoke extemporaneously. He said he didn't want to speak unless his words were prepared because he knew that words mattered. Words can inspire but words can hurt. So that there's a sense in which not just our president but people are letting things out on email, they're letting things out in, in tweets that then can really get trouble for them and get trouble for the people that they're talking about. We've lost the girdle that we might have had on, or maybe Spanx is the more modern word, than <laughs> the girdle that we once had on.
2: Okay guys, just in case you don't know what Spanx are.
1: <laughs> just think of but, a modern day girdle. I mean, Lincoln had this wonderful ritual when he got mad at somebody. He would write a hot letter to the person. All of his anger would come out and then he'd put the letter aside and then never need to open it because his anger had cooled down. If only we had that kind of, that kind of capacity today. Were you
2: to put yourself 25 years from now and you had one more big biography in you of a great president? And you were trying to decide, 21st century, late 20th century, which person that would be. What kind of character would you like to be writing about, just as you fell in love with these guys? What kind of person will you fall
1: in love with again? Well, you know, I guess I would hope that that person would be somebody who's absolutely passionate about healing the divisions of the country. Um, but the problem for me writing about anybody in this century. Is that what I love the most are diaries and letters. Mm-hmm. And I would have a hard time with somebody who wasn't surrounded as the people in the 19th century and early 20th century were. There's nothing more exciting at night than to be reading a handwritten letter that says Seward, who is Lincoln's um, Secretary of State, writes to his wife because she's away. He's got thousands of letters. And you read about their relationship. He's telling you everything Lincoln did that day. He's gossiping about all the other people. And then they keep diaries. Chase keeps a diary. Bass keeps a diary. All the people in Lincoln's cabinet, they talk about each other and meanly talk about each other. And what's wrong with this guy? I'm mad at this guy. And it doesn't see the light of day until later. But you're there over their shoulders reading it. So, I mean, people a couple hundred years from now will know much more about us. They'll see us walking and talking. When you can't we... read their
2: Facebook posts. No. <laughs>
1: They'll, yeah, you'll be reading their, their tweets, I suppose, or their emails if they get saved technologically. I always tell students sometimes, you know, if you go, break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, don't throw those emails away. Some biographers someday may want to see them. It might be good to give a dimension to your life. But I think it's still going to be harder to sort through all that stuff. When we were making the Lincoln movie, the only reason we knew that Lincoln had a high-pitched voice was because somebody said he did. And of course, never had we heard him speak. So Daniel spoke in that high-pitched voice. We knew he walked like a laborer coming home at the hard day, because somebody described that in a diary. So we'll see much more of us. We'll be in, in three dimensions. We'll be in virtual reality. And yet, will they get to know us as well as we could get to know these other people? through those words, through that kind of intimacy of the communication, when today the communication is so staccato, when it's not written down. The the one period we really missed was the phone period. I mean, at least with emails, there's a possibility. But when people talked on the phone, unless they were taping the phone conversations, which, of course, LBJ did, I mean, that's why we know how brilliant he was with those senators and congressmen, because he had a button in his Oval Office and whenever he knew he was having an important conversation, he'd press the button. And they, these tapes are colorful and crude and wonderful, but they show him at work. There's is a funny story with these tapes. When, when um, I was down with Lyndon Johnson working on the memoir, and we would use these tapes. And then years later, I met the CEO of PepsiCola, And he said, now I know you knew Lyndon Johnson when you were a young girl and when you worked for him in the White House and you helped him on his memoirs. But I have a story about Johnson I bet you don't know. And he told me he was friendly with Richard Nixon. And when Nixon first became president, he asked this guy, Don Kendall, to go to the ranch to talk to Johnson about some controversial matter. Johnson's working on his memoirs. He looks up grumpily and says, how am I supposed to remember what happened 40 years ago, 30 years ago? The only chapters that are any good at all were I had this button in my Oval Office, I had a tape machine, and then I had verbatim conversation. Those chapters are really coming alive you go back and tell your good friend Richard Nixon there's nothing more important than a taping system (laughs) and thereby Lyndon Johnson contributes to the downfall
2: of his good friend Richard Nixon. I just I want to thank you for two things obviously I'd like you to thank you for coming today because it's really wonderful to hear from you but also I want to thank you for being such a passionate historian I think that uh, for me as an American Studies person at a time when my own children are in schools where technology is king, um, the importance and the value of understanding your history is so critical to our understanding of how societies work and, and what has come before and what we might be able to learn in the future. I just think somebody as passionate and as such a wonderful storyteller as Doris Kearns Goodwin is something of a gift to all of us. And I want to thank you you for doing what you do, and I hope you do it for another 75 years.
1: (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Doris Kearns Goodwin is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and world-renowned presidential historian. Leadership in Turbulent Times is her seventh book. Kitty Boone is Vice President of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. She runs the annual Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Today's discussion was held October 18, 2018. It was part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.